You know, if you know anything about my wife, you will be super surprised to find that she pulled off an incredible deception in my life about a decade ago. She surprised me, me, one of the most suspicious people you know, I promise, at my 40th birthday party that actually happened here in the gym. And there's a lot of things in my memory that stand out from that particular event, but one of them was how differently the world looked after that surprise birthday party. You know, it was almost as if I was in a daze, you know. The world looked differently, almost conspiratorial, you know. Uh, And I would go to Ginger and say, that is your name, Ginger, right? Everything looked strange. But on the other hand, even as deeply unsettling as it was, it was so encouraging to hear people's kind words and the way in which they had come out to be a part of the whole celebration. Well, as it turns out, I was reminded of that because that's, I think that's a good description of the effect that Jesus has on the life of the person that he invades. Because you're going to know that you've met the real Jesus when he surprises you. That is, he's not going to be what you expect him to be. And likely it can be pretty disorienting. But in the end, can be also profoundly encouraging. My premise is simply this. Because of the way in which the Bible describes who we are at the deepest levels, most of us need a radical reorienting around a new set of life principles. We need this because the way in which sin works on us from the Christian worldview is it creates this persistence of viewing the world exclusively through our own experiences, uh, through our own histories, through, through our own idols and, 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 and examples that have been held up for us. And what this does is it creates a series of assumptions uh, that govern the way you expect the world to behave. And oftentimes that perception is so powerful that it can keep you from seeing things that are right in front of you. In other words, we have the ability to be self-deceived. Uh, I, I saw a tweet uh, a number of months ago that cracked me up and I saved it uh, by a comedian. And I almost put it in the bulletin. It was so funny. It, it simply read this. It said, no, you can't demolish that one. That's a load-bearing delusion. Okay, for some of you, it'll hit you on the way home for some of you, okay? <laughs> Anybody who's ever watched Fixer Upper, you know, will know that when good old Chip Gaines starts his demolition day, he often uncovers a problem, and that is there's a beam in the ceiling that is load-bearing. What is it? Well, it's crucial to the structure that rises above it. It's, it's important to the structure of the house. If you remove the load-bearing beam, you make everything unstable above it. Well, <laughs> The comedian is just trying to say that there are certain delusions that are so central to the human mind that they support all the other assumptions about our lives. That's what Jesus wants to confront this morning, a load-bearing delusion in us. There are two stories that we get here that are preaching this to us, that sin has created this thing that's got to be challenged in us, a delusion. And oftentimes it can be unsettling, but hopefully encouraging as well. So two things from these stories I simply want to get across to you this morning. The first one is this. Outsiders, not insiders, are the ones who get to come in to the kingdom. That's the first one. The second one, though, is emptiness, not fullness, is the thing that launches true biblical faith. Okay? Those are the two. Outsiders, not insiders, and emptiness and not fullness. Let's take this first one. Okay, so John the Baptist has a question for Jesus. And you really can't get the full effect of it until you realize what happened in this guy's life, okay? I mean, this is a guy who had as good of things as happened to you as could possibly happen. He, he comes from humble beginnings, but actually miraculous beginnings. Even while he's still in the womb, he leaps for joy when he encounters the prenatal Jesus. Go figure. 
Uh, he starts a ministry that is enormously popular, if not a little controversial. Uh, he's got integrity as a preacher. He doesn't tell people what they want to hear. He confronts them to their face about judgment and the necessity of repentance. He's not sugarcoating anything. Finally, he's the one who stands up and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He saw Jesus first of all. In other words, he's about as impressive as you can get, spiritually speaking, where he is. Not only that, if you think about it, John the Baptist was one of the few people in history who had a direct uh, sort of sensory experience of the entire Trinity. Remember Jesus' baptism? You know, he hears God the Father say, This is my Son whom I'm well pleased. He, he, he touches the Son in the baptism, and he sees the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. And as if that wasn't enough, he's got what is, without re- doubt, the most glowing reference anyone could have. Jesus himself says, of anyone born of women, everybody, <laughs> there's nobody like John. He's the best human ever lived. This, uh, this summer, John Stone came and preached for us, one of my best buddies in the world, uh, and John tells this hilarious story about his youth group when he was uh, growing up, that every year they would, they would appoint in their youth group the Christian of the year. And John, his senior year, was the Christian of the year in his youth group. And of course, those of you who know John know that that's even funnier than you know. But John the Baptist could claim just that much more. You know, uh, everything in the man's life screams that he's doing it all right. He is one of Jesus' inside men. He gets it. Until you get to Luke chapter 7, and he's in a jail awaiting execution. Hmm. Feel the disconnect there? (laughs) How can you be on the right track, like John is, and be rotting in jail? You might be tempted to think that somewhere along the way, maybe we miss something about this Jesus character, right? And so he gets some of his followers to go ask Jesus, Jesus, um, maybe we got this wrong. Um, I don't know if actually this is, maybe you're mistaken. Are you sure that you're the one that we're looking for? In other words, John the Baptist is wavering. He was so sure, and now he's, he's wavering back and forth. This is not the way that my life was supposed to go. Like, I want to suggest to you that John was jarred into a fundamental truth about Christianity that's very hard for people to come by, and it's simply this. The outsiders are the ones who are the insiders in Jesus' kingdom. They're the ones who get in. Listen to John's logic. He's like, look, I know that the Messiah is coming to save his people. And I have an assumption about what salvation looks like. But now that Jesus has come, my life isn't going the way I thought it was going to happen. And so therefore, I need to be open to leaving this Jesus to go for the life that I really know that I am supposed to have because my, certainly my view of salvation can't be wrong, can it? That's the assumption. What this means is, is there's this temptation that's inside of the human soul to jettison Jesus the minute that our life begins to change in a way that we don't like. And I realize we're in church this morning. It's like, well, we wouldn't be one of those people to jettison Jesus. It's a whole lot more subtle than you might think. And I can state it simply. The inner ring of certainty that we've been looking for all of our lives is almost always going to be upside down from where Jesus is taking you. The inner ring. I'm going to unpack that for a second. Um, the first one is this. Um, I, don't, I looked this up to see if it was still true. It is. When I was in middle school, I had to read a book by S.E. Hinton called The Outsiders. All of you are nodding and smiling. because You had to read this book too. 
It was written in 1967. It was about this sort of class struggle between the, the socias, the socials, the pretty people, and, and, and the greasers, <laughs> the, the, the delicately named greasers, right? Um, who were the social outcasts? Do you realize that that book continues to be one of the top teen booksellers that, 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 that are available? It's still in the top ten. I checked it two weeks ago. It's still at number eight. It got unseated by Harry Potter and all that stuff. Why would that continue to sell so wildly? Why is it that people continue and still are compelled by this idea of understanding what it's like to be on the outside? Well, C.S. Lewis, I think, is, some, is a great guide here. During his, um, during his years back in the 50s and 60s, he was asked to speak um, at a boys' school graduation. And he entitled that speech, The Inner Ring. And what he's talking about is, is there's this deep, powerful compulsion that you want to be on the inside of some inner ring, he calls it, and to know that you're in in that place. And that accompanies that is this great fear that I would ever be on the outside of that ring. Here's what he says in the, in the speech. He says, you know, it's not the large lighted rooms or the champagne or even the scandals about peers that we really want. We don't need the big public recognition. What we really want is the sacred little attic or studio or dorm room. He didn't say that idea. Our heads bent together, the fog of tobacco smoke, and the delicious knowledge that we, we are the ones who know. Here, huddled beside this fire, I believe that in all of men's lives at certain periods, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside of some ring of influence and the abject fear of being left on the outside. My main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. Think about it. He's talking about that urge to be included, to be in some group of people that you perceive to be influential, or maybe that you perceive to be important, or cool, or hip. Um, They can be opposites. Maybe liberally minded. Maybe conservative, maybe right, or maybe wrong. Maybe they are good guys, maybe they're bad guys. Maybe they're the upstanding people in society, maybe they're rebellious. But either way, whatever you choose, the explanation for so much of what you do and so much of the things that you mull over in your mind are given because everything inside you wants to be in. I want to be in. I want to know that I'm with that group of people. And everybody feels it. Everybody. Am I wrong, freshman? We want to be known as that type of person, no matter where we land ourselves. And we're not just talking about the rich condescending to the poor, though I'm sure that happens in a lot of places. But we're talking about these places who, who oftentimes are created even by those who don't think they have an inner ring. You ever been one of those? You're one of the dispossessed. You're being like, yeah, give it to them there, preacher boy. You know, tell them what's going on because, you know, I... Those people, those are just the snobs. But you realize you can create your own inner ring of being an outcast. Well, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to be with them. They're just snobs and, and hypocrites, every one of them. It's the same desire that's still going on. But Lewis's question is how much of how you behave is born out of that line? That I want to be on that line. I want to be, I want to be somewhere on the inside. He goes on to describe how much we oftentimes blush when we suddenly realize, oftentimes without realizing, that we're in. Yes, of course, I'd love to come to that party. 
I'd love to go with y'all. Our family would love to join you. Mm, It's powerful. But see, Jesus comes along and says, look, guys, you need to understand that the least likely people that you think are going to inhabit the kingdom are the ones who are coming in. And John the Baptist, not only do you not have it wrong, but let me tell you what's happening. The blind, the sort of socially marginalized, they receive their sight. The poor, the sort of financially marginalized, they're the ones that are coming in. It's all of the people, John, that you would look at and say, this should not be the people that inhabit the kingdom. They're the ones that are racing in. In other words, the chapter seems to scream that those people who believe themselves to be in are actually out. And those people who have actually learned not to care whether they're in or out, they're the ones that are in. See the principle? Jesus is going to come to you in a way that you don't expect. And he uses this great illustration about the school children. (laughs) School children in in, in that day would oftentimes have little role-playing games. Sometimes they would pretend to have a wedding, which was a big event in their day. At other times, they would uh, pretend to be in a funeral. And sometimes the children would say, you know what, we played a flute for a wedding and you didn't dance with us. And then we played a dirge and you didn't go play funeral with us. So Jesus is saying, you realize that Pharisees, I don't think you like me whichever way I come to you. You know, John came with the kingdom of God as this sort of strict religious ascetic. Here I come as a party animal, according to you, and you don't like me either. I'm beginning to think you don't like my message and however it comes down. In other words, I think the problem is actually deeper inside of you. It's rooted somewhere. You know, you didn't like John because he was so harsh. You don't like me because I drink alcohol in public. But, but either way, I have come to so radically decenter your existence that whatever you have built your life upon up until this point has got to go. It's got to go. Or at least be demoted demoted in your life to be something that's not that big a deal. In other words, whatever you expect Jesus to be, whatever you want Him to be, is oftentimes just the opposite of what He has to be if you're going to be a part of His kingdom. Think about this for a second. Like Some of you are born more naturally, whether through DNA or uh, training or whatever, just more passive and more gentle. And you tend to gravitate towards passages in the Bible that talk about Jesus' gentleness and His kindness and, and His grace to people, all of which is true. But Jesus is saying, you're not, you've not come and joined me until you have felt that pit form in your stomach that comes from needing to confront something in your life that is going to require you not to be the nice person in the room. And it's going to cause you to say to yourself, this can't be right. This cannot be what Jesus wants me to do. Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Others of you are more possessed of a more bold, kind of outgoing, maybe even aggressive personality. You gravitate towards the sayings of Jesus that are, you know, where he takes things on head on and and confronts people in task. But Jesus is saying, you have not joined my kingdom until you feel the pit in your stomach that comes from knowing that you need to let that offense against you go. You're going to have to let it go. You don't need to ever bring it up again. You need to absorb that hurt instead of all of a sudden venting it. Feel the weight of that and feel the inside of you saying, this cannot be what Jesus wants me to do. Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Look, here's the point. You know you've entered God's kingdom when you begin to see him molding you into something that you fundamentally don't want to be. This is why verse 23, here's one to underline. Blessed are, are, is the one who is not offended by me. 
Has Jesus offended you yet? Has he confronted your baseline personal narrative, the story that you're telling and believing about yourself? Because his kingdom are for outsiders. They're the ones that get to come in. Okay, that's the first point. The outsiders, not the insiders coming. The second one is a far briefer point. And that is that emptiness, not fullness, is what launches real faith. Frankly, I think the entirety of chapter 7 is about the idea of faith. But it's so strange when we really are confronted with the, with the popular conception of faith. I had this first happen to me when I was in seminary. There was a young man that I went to seminary with who had an extraordinary story because he had left to come to Bible school from a Fortune 500 company making all kinds of money. But he sensed God's call to ministry, and so he packed up his wife and his four children and came and joined us. We all, within two or three months of being there, his wife received a terminal cancer diagnosis. Well, after a couple of months of treatment and no success, we gathered into a small chapel into the center of the campus to pray for this woman. And you got to hear me. Men infinitely more godly than I am, which is not that hard to do, but infinitely more godly than I am began to pray for this woman prayers that like I've never heard and begged God for the life of this woman, that he would not do this to a servant who had given up so much. Well, two months later, she was dead. And I remember it sending a shockwave through me. Because on the one hand, I was thinking to myself, why would God not do this? Why would he not answer this prayer? Which suddenly led me to think, maybe I was the weak link, you know? In the room that was supposed to believe God for this healing, maybe I was, maybe I was the problem. It happened because of me. In other words, we're a little bit like, you know, we still have the Yoda faith, right? Luke Skywalker cannot believe that little Yoda can bring the ship up out of the swamp. And, he's, and he looks at it and goes, I don't believe it. And Yoda's like, well, that's why you fail. You didn't sort of have enough faith. See, we think that faith is this full certainty and conviction that we're going to march out in the world fearless and courageous. But Jesus explodes that whole way of thinking in verse 50. Look what he says to the prostitute. Your faith has saved you. In other words, the kind of faith that the sinner woman has is the kind that's going to get you into the kingdom. Well, what kind of faith is that? Well, in order to get that, you've got to see the contrast between Simon and this woman, which is what the whole story is about. Look at Simon. You know, he's so pompous, and he's unwelcoming as it turns out. You know, he's shown very poor hospitality by that culture standards. There, there was no foot washing that he gave. Uh, there were no kisses for greeting. There was no oil for head anointing. Beyond that, he's deeply offended that this, someone so beneath him would enter his home, this sinner. He's always looking down on other people. Hmm. But then you have this woman. Again, she's a prostitute who has done something pretty radical when you consider what her culture was because she gave up her jar of perfume for him. Now, what does that mean? Well, I read a commentator who explained that this was a social convention. Uh, wives, women, would oftentimes wear a vial of perfume that was for them the very essence of their beauty. I'm assuming that in that culture, men and women both had smells that they wanted to cover up. Well, women, because they longed for that allure, would wear these small little vials of, of perfume. Well, these, this perfume was oftentimes very costly. We got one ancient Near Eastern source that says that uh, uh, in some company, a man was allowed to spend up to 400 gold coins on his wife's vial of perfume. See, for this, for this prostitute, though, this was her livelihood that was wrapped up in this thing. It was her very beauty. It was the essence of her allure. 
And yet she cracks the thing open and wastes it all on Jesus. What in the world would make her do something like that? Well, Jesus tells us it's because she loves him that much. But that begs the question, why did she love him that much? Well, here's what he says. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. See the point? Simon and the woman are sort of booting off of two entirely different templates of life. Simon is over here living for his own worthiness. He's working himself to death to maintain that sense of public posture. And that's the kind of religion that a Pharisee will always create. When you believe that you and God are in good stead with each other because of how you perform that week, you naturally come to despise anybody that's beneath you. Why? Because you're so insecure about where you are. Because your performance goes up and down. Therefore, you highlight other people's failures who don't look as good as you do in comparison. But see, the woman, by comparison, she's lost. She's lost the will to even try. She's gotten off the treadmill. She's become shameless, willing to give up her very dignity. How is that possible? Well, it's only if she had her dignity, if she had her beauty relocated. She's demoted her physical beauty, her allure, to a place that's less than the most important thing. What was that? It was Jesus' forgiveness, which has freed her up. I want to finish with a favorite story that I heard. Uh, the old Welsh preacher, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Remember his name. He's important. But I remember him telling a story one time about, or giving an illustration one time about, imagine that I walked up to you this morning and said to you, hey, I just paid one of your bills. If you think about it, you really don't know how to react at that announcement, do you? Because there's lots of options. Maybe he paid off a bill uh, for a postage stamp that got bought for you. Um, but it might be that they paid off your mortgage on your home. Do you see how the degree of joy that you have at the knowledge that the debt was paid is directly proportional to the size of the debt? You get the point. Big sinner, big love. Little sinner, little love. That's the, that's the calculus of Jesus' kingdom. Look, for this woman, she gets it. She's seen up close something the Pharisee has not seen, or at least is not willing to admit to herself is there. And that is that Jesus gave her a forgiveness that completely revolutionizes her character. And the crazy thing is, as you can see it in the way that she acts, because she's, she's seen it firsthand. I used to love to tell college student women that there was going to come a day where you call your mother in an entirely different spirit. <laughs> that little bundle of joy... Uh, is going to be there for a little while, but it's going to strike you late one night while that thing is screeching and screaming at you that, you know what, that thing used to be you. And so you're going to call your mother and you're going to be like, you know, I know you told me that you loved me. Now I know that you love me. Why? Because the size of the grace now matches the size of the need. Folks, that's the surprise of Jesus. You know, we've been looking this whole semester at what we might find compelling about Jesus to give up everything and follow Him. Well, here it is. Christianity is a surprise because it's grasped by the empty, not the full. It's only offered to the outsiders, not the insiders. It surprises you. It's not trying to make faith into being some sort of cosmic vending machine that you're trying to pump faith nickels into 
so that you can get, A, the life that you want in heaven when I die. It's not what faith is. Faith is the broken, empty hand that comes along. And once it's established, it changes everything. It changes everything. Horatius Bonner, I quoted from it two weeks ago. I got another one by, by him. He's getting a lot of press these days. In his book, Everlasting Righteousness, says this. He goes, forgiveness is the mainspring of holiness. Love as a motive is so much stronger than the rules. Far more influential than fear of wrath or maybe peril of hell. Terror may make a man crouch like a slave and obey a hardened master, lest a worse thing come upon him. But only a sense of forgiving love can bring either heart or conscience into that state in which obedience is either pleasant to the soul or acceptable to God. So which is it? Has Jesus surprised you? Has Jesus sort of unseated those things inside you that you always wanted so badly to build your life on, but even now are crumbling? Because it might just be that just like my birthday surprised me, it might be encouraging too. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we do pray that by Your Spirit You would surprise us this morning, that You would move us, that You would help us to see, even as we come to the table, that You have provided for us in a way in which we could not imagine. And so by Your Spirit this morning and in this supper, would You teach us who You are? For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.